She's the author of a book on the postmodern novel called Chronoschisms, Time, Narrative, and Postmodernism, which came out with uh, Cambridge University Press. And among her many articles, she's published a short and a very handy introduction to ecocriticism, for those who are wondering what it is, uh, which is fittingly called The Hitchhiker's Guide to Ecocriticism, which came out in the PMLA in 2006. And it's a, an article I highly recommend. Um, and I also highly recommend her recent book, which is called A Sense of Place and Sense of Planet, The Environmental Imagination of the Global, which just came out uh, from Oxford University Press last year. Professor Heiss's recent book stages a dialogue between the dominant forms of eco-criticism, particularly the place-based aesthetic, as it's been formulated by scholars, particularly in the American West, alongside theories of globalization and cosmopolitanism, which, generally speaking, have been suspicious of models of extreme localism. As such, she's encouraging us to think critically about the way some eco-critics depict localism as an inherently progressive politics, without considering how national discourses of belonging and attachment to place have often pathologized migration and cultural difference. Heiss's work brings together these two models by theorizing how a sense of place can mean such a radically different thing to different groups. Her book makes a provocative argument to replace the discourse of eco-localism with an eco-cosmopolitanism in order to uphold a more dynamic and fluid model of environmental world citizenship. The title of her talk today is No Talk of Trees, Environmental Literature and the Question of Global and Cultural Difference. Please join me in welcoming Professor Ursula Heisler. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here um, and to be part of this series. So as you can see from my title, I took um, the uh, topic of this lecture series somewhat seriously to investigate the ways in which environmental thought does hang together with different cultural backgrounds. And what I'm interested in is the question of how different cultural and literary traditions condition certain forms of thinking about the environment and about ecology, indeed, as a scientific discipline, and then by extension lead to very different types of environmentalist movements and to different types of environmentalist literature. And so as you can see from the, um, from the handout, my focus is going to be on the US and, and Germany, and I'll say more in a minute um, as to what I'm going to do here. Um, let me start out by giving a little bit of a general background in terms of how I see eco-criticism having engaged or and not engaged with questions of culture and cultural difference. And then I'll give you a very, very sort of quick um, historical survey of the environmentalist movement in Germany and how it differs from the American environmentalist movement. And then we're going to move into the meat of um, environmental literature, in this case, particularly poetry and how it, in some ways, is symptomatic of some of these differences. So as you probably all know, when eco-criticism emerged in the early 1990s, it was firmly rooted in one national culture, namely that of the United States, um, and uh, attained its first intellectual visibility mostly in American studies, and was, in fact, constituted from within the Western Literature Association. Um, at the same time, the work of the first generation of eco-critics situated itself in staunch and, and very vocal opposition to, um, at the time, prevailing post-structuralist theories of literature. Um, the perception was that the emphasis of post-structuralism on textuality, social construction of biological concepts um, 
was a major obstacle to, to addressing issues of environmental pollution, demographic growth, consumption, species extinction, or climate change. And I think that perception was not entirely unjustified. Um, given the emphasis on the urgency of real-life ecological issues and on the necessity of political awareness and intervention, it's unsurprising that a, that a great number of first-wave eco-critics focused on nature writing in the form of nonfiction prose. Um, and indeed, you could argue that one of the major achievements of that first wave of eco-criticism was to open up that entire new archive in American literature to study in a way that it had been before. Now, a little more surprisingly, poetry also played a really central role in the eco-critical engagement with literature at a time when poetry was not a dominant genre of literary studies in the, in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and that, in spite of the fact that poetry would seem at first blush to lend itself less readily to any kind of straightforward realist approach to environmentalist issues. Now, first wave eco-criticism, as I see it, got around that issue to some extent by focusing for the most part on not particularly experimental kinds of verse, uh, fairly transparent forms of free verse by authors who have most of them a known commitment to environmentalist issues. So Wendell Berry, Gary Snyder, W.S. Merwin, um, Robinson Jeffers, Mary Oliver, and so forth. Um, and at the same time, they eschewed and indeed attacked poetry and poetry criticism that engaged above all issues of textuality. So I don't know how many of you are familiar with um, Leonard Skigai's book, Sustainable Poetry, from 1999. But um, he argues very vigorously for a renewed engagement with the real world outside the text, a poetry based on what he calls référence, um, sort of in a play on the French, French différence. Um, uh, and it's, it's a book that's very vocal in its celebration of poetry that very resolutely centers on the material world, um, as well as in its dismissal of post-structuralism and any kind of language-oriented poetry. Um, Nowski Guy, like quite a few other critics, invokes the European phenomenological tradition of Heidegger and Merleau-Ponty as a way of thinking about the human encounter with nature. But as you might anticipate, his understanding of that tradition differs substantially from that of Derrida and other post-structuralists. What interests Skigai and other eco-critics in that phase of the, of the area is the, mostly the Heideggerian critique of modern society and technology and the emphasis on authentic dwelling um, understood as a reconnection with an essential human self as well as with the fundamental structures of nature. Um, so in that view, the way in which poetry is understood is as a mode of resistance to the distortions of authentic being brought about by modernist rationality. So that's sort of first wave eco-criticism. All of these initial eco-critical assumptions about the natural world, about its scientific um, exploration, about the nature of representation, <coughs> and the centrality of realism were gradually put into question after the turn of the millennium. On one hand, you have critics like, um, like um, David Maisel, who in his book American Literary Environmentalism takes a very different kind of approach to the history of American environmentalism and environmental literature that's really based on Michel Foucault and Judith Butler in large part. And then on the other hand, you have critics such as Dana Phillips, um, who are more science-oriented. Science Dana Phillips's Truth of Ecology from 2003 um, uh, attacked above all what he perceived as the all too simple and ultimately inaccurate understanding of contemporary ecological science and eco-criticism. Um, but so, so on one hand, you have um, increasingly controversial debates raging in the eco-critical arena after the turn of the millennium. 
and a much greater variety of theoretical perspectives, as well as a vastly expanded literary canon. And by now, that canon ranges across all continents and a variety of languages. Um, <clears throat> nevertheless, when you look at work in eco-criticism, um, I think it does remain striking how much of this work, especially but not only on poetry, continues to revolve in terms of the topics it engages around basic modalities of human embodiedness, human cognition and perception, and how those might translate into text. By contrast, differences in the, in the understanding of nature that emerge not from underlying biological, cognitive, and social dimensions of human inter humans' interaction with the natural world, but from the contingencies of vastly differing regional, national, and subnational cultures and histories are much more rarely investigated. Um, so on one hand, you have these um, huge sort of cultural schemas of difference by um, William Mills, Neil Everender, and Carolyn Merchant, where um, critics try to um, categorize different cultural approaches to nature by huge um, historical periods, sort of antiquity, Middle Ages, Renaissance. And um, whenever you try to use those in the engagement with literary texts, it's really difficult to do because, of course, the, the literary texts often do not line up with the great epistemes of, of the periods, if one even believes these epi epistemes. I mean, they're often, um, I think, unconvincing as generalizations as they're, as they're persuasive. Um, one of the more, I think, interesting developments in this area has been the rise of the post-colonial paradigm in eco-criticism, um, which is, has recently arisen and is, is in the process of rising currently. In the work that's been published to date, though, I don't think that this gap in engagement with culture has yet been filled. While post-colonial eco-critics do eloquently point to the differences that geopolitical and socioeconomic inequalities make, for claims about humans' relation to nature, cultural difference itself is less often the focal point of discussion. Now, if you go beyond eco-criticism, I think there are some attempts in anthropological and sociological approaches to the global environmentalist movement that have included attempts to identify regionally different <coughs> variants of environmentalist thought and culture and activism. Um, and often the conceptual impulse behind these sorts of approaches is the attempt to go beyond the famous post-materialism hypothesis that was proposed by Nathan Rosenberg, the assumption that um, individuals and communities only become concerned about um, the deterioration of the natural environment once they've gotten to a certain level of affluence. So against that view, Sheila Jasanoff, for example, the um, science study scholar at Harvard, has argued that the environmentalism of the industrial world stands out by its global aspirations, while environmentalism in the developing world is characterized by its emphasis on the local. You sort of have a feeling that she, mustn't, she can't have read a whole lot of American environmentalist literature of the last 40 years, because that would certainly persuade one otherwise. Um, a little more persuasively, Ramachandra Gua and Juan Martinez Allier have distinguished between materialist environmentalisms um, that revolve around struggles for material subsistence and physical health, which they see instantiated above all, but not only in the developing world, and then non-materialist environmentalisms that are primarily oriented toward aesthetic or other non-utilitarian functions of nature. And I've reproduced um, a, a schema from their, um, from, uh, the, the first chapter of their 1997 book, Varieties of Environmentalism, on your, on your handout. Um, so you can see there, I mean, they, they're sort of, what they're interested in is the bottom left. 
that is materialist environmentalisms in poor countries. And the big achievement of their book was to make visible as forms of environmentalism movements, say, um, against the building of dams or against deforestation in India and Latin America, which are the two areas that these two scholars in particular, um, in particular focus on. Um, and which, in a first move, they, they juxtapose with the non-materialist environmentalisms of the first world. Um, so the, the sort of the interest in quality of life and maintaining nature as beautiful, the sort of mostly leisure and aesthetically oriented environmentalism that you find in, in um, Europe and the US. But then they admit in a next step that, of course, there are also materialist forms of environmentalism in the US and Europe. I mean, when people fight against toxic waste dumps in their neighborhoods, um, then that obviously is a materialist concern. That doesn't have anything to do with, with aesthetics. At the same time, they rely on um, theorists like Mandana Shiva, who has argued that there are certain kinds of environmentalism in the developing world which also have a sort of spiritual basis, that they're based in, a, in certain indigenous traditions or um, Eastern religious uh, traditions to argue for the sacredness of all life, um, I mean, in, in various versions. So, so that's how they come up with this sort of four-part schema. They really sort of start from the juxtaposition of the bottom left and the top right, and then, and then fill it in. Now, these kinds of distinctions are obviously really useful at a general sociological level, and this was the first piece that really got us beyond this, um, the, the uh, post-materialism um, theory. Um, but of course, if you come from literary and cultural studies, what's striking about the schema is how incredibly general it is. Guhen Martinez-Alier's approach provides no easy way, um, for example, to account for substantial differences um, in the cultural perception of various facets of environmentalist attitudes and thought. So to give a few examples, um, very different perceptions of genetically modified foods between the United States and Western Europe. Um, deep wariness of nuclear technology that distinguishes German and Japanese culture from the traditional French perception of nuclear plants as icons of progress. Um, the importance of animal rights in British culture and British environmentalism, which is really quite different from its continental European counterparts. Um, or representations of nature as rugged and wild in traditional Chinese culture, as opposed to representations of it as constrained, small-scale, and domesticated in Japanese culture. I mean, these are just a few um, fairly obvious examples. Um, now, that's not to imply that different kinds of environmentalism necessarily line up with the boundaries of national cultures. So I think that national cultures certainly do play an important role in shaping environmentalism as to different indigenous traditions. But what I, what I am implying is that cultural study does require finer-grained distinctions than these very general ones that you see in the schema that I passed out to you. So what's needed, I think, is a more developed comparative eco-criticism that itself might be able to contribute substantially to the identification of different types of environmentalism by focusing precisely on the study of cultural practices, texts, and artifacts. And so that's sort of the general context in which I'd like to focus on the emergence of ecologically oriented poetry in the 1960s and 70s in two, well, really three countries, all of which have large philosophically articulate and politically very active environmental movements. So it's Germany, which of course at the time is still West Germany and East Germany, and the United States. And so if, if very briefly, what I will argue is that the basic modes of approaching um, an endangered nature through poetry 
differ substantially between these two areas, not because of any striking differences in the kinds of ecological challenges that these two regions faced at the time, nor because of any fundamental divergences in the understanding of the natural world, but because of recent cultural histories that made certain kinds of lyrical engagement with nature available in one case and culturally unacceptable in the other. Um, and from that comparative viewpoint, the questions that eco-poetry raises are not only those most often discussed in eco-critical analyses, not just uh, Leonard Skigais, but John Elder, Scott Bryson's, and so forth. Um, that is, these questions of how humans experience, perceive, know, and manipulate the natural world, and how they translate that interface into linguistic and rhetorical form. The question is also, and I think to some extent more importantly, um, <clears throat> how such rhetorical forms as well as the experience they translate are shaped by, to some extent, quite contingent cultural and political histories. So that's sort of by way of general framework. Um, now let me give you, just, just to give you some idea of, of what the, um, where German environmentalism comes from and what the background is for some of the poems that I want to look at with you. Um, the trajectory of the, of the German environmentalist movement is rather different from the American one. Um, it starts at roughly the same point in time. Um, the beginnings of environmentalism in both regions can be traced to the late 19th century, um, when you have the emergence of, of nature protection conservationist um, and proto-environmentalist associations in both countries. Um, so you have you know, John Muir's Sierra Club in the US, and both working class and bourgeois um, associations in Germany. But when you look at them comparatively, I mean, one difference is, um, is immediately striking. Whereas the Sierra Club was invested in protecting wild natural areas that were thought to have been untouched by humans, the German associations were usually called something like Bund für Natur und Denkmalschutz, that is, Association for the Protection of Nature and Historical Monuments. So nature was, from the beginning, not conceived of as apart from human activity, as it was for the most part in the US, but was thought together with human historical and cultural legacies. Now, in the 1920s, a whole range of other movements and associations emerged that addressed different facets of the of relation between um, humans and their environments. And you can actually speak of a sort of um, proto-counterculture um, in Germany in the 1920s. Um, so you have a whole, um, a whole range of associations around nudist culture, the FKK, Freikörperkultur. Um, you have an interest, very vigorous interest in vegetarianism, alternative nutrition, and health products that um, gave rise to the so-called Reformhäuser, and those still exist today, actually. Um, they're sort of the precursors of your sort of whole foods on a, on a smaller scale. Um, so what we would call organic stores that sold specially prepared groceries, hygiene products, and herbal medication. Probably all of you know this brand, Veleda, which, which dates from that, from that period and still sells its products today. And then there were um, a lot of associations, such as the famous Wanderfogel associated with hiking, um, that also um, were predicated on a certain understanding of humans and the natural environment. Um, now, that sort of nascent counterculture was squashed during the Nazi years in ways that I'll explain in more detail later on, and didn't really re-emerge until the 1960s in somewhat different form um, when it was associated with the emergence of the contemporary environmentalist movement. Now, in Germany, as in the US, the impulse for the environmentalist movement was sort of a mix of ecological and pacifist impulses. So on one hand, the perception of environmental destruction and 
of industry and technology modernization in general gone haywire, um, but also vigorous and in Germany sometimes violent protest against the construction of nuclear plants, protest against the Vietnam War, and the stationing of American missiles on German soil. Um, in the 1970s, in West Germany, you actually have two environmentalist movements running parallel to each other, one that was mostly left-oriented and included a large number of, um, of people who had formerly been associated with the Communist Party, um, and a right-wing one with greater emphasis on values of family and, and stewardship, led by a guy named Herbert Grohl, um, whose 1975 book, Ein Planet wird geplündert, A Planet is Plundered, um, became a well-known work of environmental political writing, nonfiction writing. Um, so this conservative environmental movement did peter out, um, whereas the more leftist wing went on to found a political party, the Grünen and the Greens, in 1979. And that party, over the next 20 years, gradually did become a considerable force in municipal and state politics, and more slowly in national politics. Now, you may know that the German electoral system, um, the national one, is based on proportional representation. Um, so smaller parties that get more than 5% of the vote are represented in parliament, um, even if they have less than 10 or so. Um, so these smaller parties do potentially pay, play a really important role in national politics. Some people argue um, too important a one because they become coalition partners when the larger parties don't get um, clear majorities. Um, so um, in the 1990s, the German party became a presence in parliament and became part of a governing coalition, um, which was, uh, in the last few years, replaced by the grand coalition government of, of Angela Merkel. But so for a time, you actually did have the Green Party in government. And you probably remember the best-known figure from that period, Joschka Fischer, who was the Green Foreign Minister, Secretary of State in Germany in those years. So the trajectory of the movement is quite different from its US counterpart. It plays a very active role in national politics and has formed part of a government. Um, it was quite successful, along with its counterparts in other um, European countries, in implementing a great number of environmentalist policies. Um, and during the governmental period, um, one thing that was really interesting was the way in which green politics then came head to head with larger issues of international politics, which created a certain amount of infighting and dissent within the Green Party itself, notably um, around issues such as the Iraq War and the deployment of German troops abroad, where um, there was a sort of real um, split between the sort of realpolitik Greens and then the, the, the so-called foundationalists really wanted to stuck to the pacifist roots of the, of the Green Movement. Now, at the same time, one should note that public interest in Green issues really waned after the 1989 reunification of the two Germanys and the humongous financial difficulties that Germany subsequently faced. So in an odd way, and, and the production of environmental literature, among others, really went down in the 1990s. So um, in an odd way, green issues are both more mainstream in Germany uh, and much less often spoken about with the political urgency um, that they are in the United States. At least that was true until the climate change crisis hit public debate. I mean, that has changed it somewhat I think across the EU in recent years, but before that, there's just sort of a background of green assumptions that's there, but wasn't sort of often engaged in very vigorous um, political debates. Now, German and American environmental literature also differ considerably. Um, Nonfiction nature writing, a genre that's very important in American letters, 
and features writers ranging from Thoreau to Mary Austin and Annie Miller barely exists in German at all. And it's, in fact, a genre that I think across Europe is not very common. Um, uh, our eco-critical colleague, Greg Yard, in, in Britain, um, uh, complains about the fact that when he wants to teach nature writing classes, most of the examples do end up being American in the nonfiction um, part of the class, because even in Britain, there just isn't, there, there aren't that many um, examples of that. And I think it's interesting um, so to think about why that might be. Ecologically oriented poetry in the two regions is quite different in its basic structures. Um, and some of the differences might um, emerge through a comparative look at two poems published during the decade when the environmentalist movement had become a firmly established political and cultural presence in both Germany and the US. So let's let's take a look at some of these um, some of these poems to make this all a little more concrete. My first example is from uh, Gary Snyder's volume Turtle Island, which appeared in 1974, um, and it's called um, Night Herons. Night herons nest in the cypress by the San Francisco stationary boilers with a high smokestack at the edge of the waters. And so then I'm leaving out a part of the poem. It's not a very long one. It's too long, so I'll put a handout. How could the night herons ever come back to this noisy place on the bay, like me? The joy of all the beings is in being older and tougher and eaten up. In the tubes and lanes of things, in the sewers of bliss and judgment, in the glorious cleansing of treatment plants. We pick our way through the edge of the city, subtly spreading, changing sky, ever fresh and lovely dawn. So this poem focuses on the lyricalized discovery that a wild bird species has made an unlikely habitat for itself in the midst of a big city, right next to urban and industrial structures such as smokestacks, sewers, and treatment plants. That realization leads the speaker to acknowledge his oneness with other species in the search for modes of survival and the participation in ecological systems and trophic chains of various sorts. As the double meaning of plants, separated to stand in his own, on its own line here, signals, the modern urban environment becomes part of an overarching ecosystem that includes both natural and man-made structures. This harmonious union of nature with culture and technology becomes for the speaker a symbol of renewal. Sewage treatment doesn't point to the dirty underside of modern urban life so much as to the recycling of waste materials that ecologically generates new life. Now, a short poem by the West German poet Hans-Jürgen Heise called Arbeitsteilige Welt, Labor Divided World from 1980, revolves around a similar observation. And I should note that um, no relation of mine, Heise, is a, is a fairly common name in, in Germany. So um, there's actually a famous 19th century poem called Paul Heise and various others. So um, uh, no, no relation implied here. Um, I'm just going to read this in the, in the English translation um, to save time. Late October, the sun's rays have already been put on rails or tracks. And where once forest rangers rake the leaves, now a hissing blower clears the paths. The thrushes, long since well-adjusted to traffic, have cars, brave labor divided world, in Capivi Street crack the falling nuts for them. Now this is obviously an approximate translation, but even that rough translation shows that this poem casts the adjustment of a bird species to an urban habitat in a very different light. The poet seems to admire the thrush's adaptive ingenuity, just as Snyder's speaker expresses surprise and admiration at the return of the herons to the city. But for Heise's observer, this adaptation presents itself 
as a consequence of a natural world that's being relentlessly restructured by technology. Already in the first stanza, he describes sunlight as having been gashined, um, put on rails or on tracks. And he points to the obnoxiously noisy leaf blowers that now perform the task um, that humans once carried out quietly. That technological domination leads the observer to view the thrush's ingenuity as an adaptation to the structures of a capitalist industrialized world with its division of labor, rather than as a sign of the biological commonalities Snyder's speaker emphasizes. Now, of course, the underhanded humor of that labor division metaphor might at first sight resemble Snyder's quiet, quiet amusement in his poem. But as the allusion to Huxley's dystopia here foregrounds, Heise's humor really is far more bitter. Whereas Snyder detects the potential for eco-cultural renewal in the adjustment of wild birds to an urban environment, Heise sees it as a last resort of a species that no longer has a natural habitat, and therefore as a reason for regret, or partly amused and partly melancholic resignation to the passing of nature. Now, these opposed lyrical interpretations of what are on the surface quite similar ecological observations are, I think, symptomatic of the very different modes of eco-poetry in Germany and the US in the 1970s and to some extent up to the present. American eco-poetry, even when it's socially critical and opposes late 20th century society, usually also celebrates the natural world and draws reasons for hope from it. <coughs> German eco-poetry tends to be much more explicitly political and militant, much more pessimistic in its assessment of the state of nature, and frequently doesn't offer the reader any immediate reason for optimism. So on the whole, it's a much more depressing reading experience. One of the crucial reasons for these differences in lyrical expression on the part of the poet, who see themselves faced with arguably very similar phenomena, lies in the relationship of eco-poetry as an emerging genre to older forms of nature poetry and poetry of place. And this is the argument that I'd like to pursue a little. Um, for reasons of literary and cultural history, German and American eco-poetry differed quite strikingly from each other in the extent <coughs> in which they're able to draw on the expressive resources of these lyrical traditions, that is, nature poetry and poetry of place. Um, so the American tradition, probably um, most of you know reasonably well, um, interest in the creation and reception of nature poetry, of course, has waxed and waned in the US over the course of the 20th century. But I think it's not unfair to say that there is an essentially unbroken tradition in this genre that runs from late 20th century poets like Gary Snyder, A.R. Ammons, and Hayden Carruth back to Walt Whitman's celebrations of the American landscape and, of course, all the way back to Thoreau and Emerson. That tradition derives its continuity from several factors. Um, perhaps most importantly, American poets throughout the 20th century have had a consistent interest in the literary exploration of place. Even poets whom one wouldn't want to classify primarily as nature poets, I'm thinking of figures such as Wallace Stevens, William Collis Williams, or Charles Olson, were intensely concerned with the significance of local communities and landscapes. And in their poems, they explored the relation of these landscapes to individual life stories, as well as the history of larger entities such as the nation. So I think of um, Charles Olson's Gloucester, um, William Collis Williams's Patterson, um, Wallace Stevens's Florida, and so forth. After World War II, one, one might have expected the interest in nature to diminish with the force of the American industrial push and increasing urbanization and suburbanization. Some of the beat poets rediscovered it through the detour of East Asian art, culture, and religion. 
And the countercultural movement of the 1960s, one of whose central concerns was the return to nature, or at any rate, the return to what was perceived to be a more natural style of living, prompted a renewed interest in the natural environment, and that even before interest uh, uh, or awareness of the environmental crisis took hold. As a consequence, ecological poetry, as it emerged in the course of the 60s and 70s, had a wide array of strategic I'm sorry, of poetic strategies at its disposal and could build on a long tradition of writing and reading that cherished nature and a sense of place as indispensable components of human identity. The emergence of eco-poetry in the two Germanies took place under quite different circumstances. Now, in German literature, you have an equally long tradition of nature poetry that runs from Romanticism to the Expressionism of the 19-teens and 20s. But the genre then did follow a very different trajectory in the 20th century um, <clears throat> due to the transformative influence of the Nazi period. And that, and that, of course, poetry is not unlike many other literary and aesthetic genres. To begin with, um, let me explain a little bit what I, what I mean by that. So to begin with, um, in certain aspects of the aesthetic reflection on and celebration of nature were appropriated by Nazi ideology in such a way that it became really difficult to include them in non or anti-Nazi poetry. Um, so this sort of nationalistically tinged veneration of nature and the local landscape, sub summed up in the Pledge of Allegiance to Blut und Boden, blood and soil, was part and parcel of national, national socialist ideology. Um, and concepts such as the German forest and the strength of the German oak were turned into icons of the Nazist regime. Nazi poetry often used concepts such as the soil to, to cement the unity of the German people, and images such as storm, thunder, or lightning to naturalize violence as a political means of expression. Notions such as Heimat, home, and the genre of Heimat Lyrik, so home poetry, or whatever you might want to translate it, which is the closest German equivalent to the American poetry of place, could easily be appropriated for such ideological purposes even though some leftist poets fought hard to reclaim it. So that's one part of the, of the historical picture, is the appropriation of a certain part of the romantic tradition and natural symbols for the purposes of fascist propaganda. But perhaps even more crucial for later developments was the role nature played for poets of the so-called inner immigration, the inner um, immigration, inner exile. Um, poets who did not sympathize with the Nazi regime but chose to remain in Germany. For some of these poets, and prominent names here would include Wilhelm Lehmann and Oskar Lörke, nature became a place of refuge from the political, social, and cultural ravages of Nazism. They attributed to it what came to be called Naturmagie, nature magic, almost magical powers to preserve the individual and retain a degree of harmony even in the midst of disaster. Now the consequence of that particular kind of poetry for German poetry after 1945 was to effectively foreclose what might have become, with some modifications, a potential source of eco-poetry. Indeed, to some extent, it disabled the continuing creation of nature poetry more broadly understood, which became a relatively insignificant genre after the war, and that's a development that I'll um, talk more about in, in just a minute. Now, um, a third um, factor is this. Um, was, of course, an important group of writers in the 1930s and 40s. Um, those that did leave Germany went into exile. Um, many German poets didn't get around to writing a great deal of nature poetry during their exile, 
Um, in part, no doubt, as one critic has pointed out, because many of them had to change countries quite often, and therefore didn't have much time to experience any, any particular place in depth. But they also avoided the genre because they felt conflicted about devoting much attention to nature at a time when the most pressing issues seemed overwhelmingly um, social and political. That conflict manifests itself clearly in the work of Bertolt Brecht, particularly in this poem called um, An die Nachgeborene, to those born after, of which I just put just a few lines um, on, the, on the back of your um, handout under three, um, where it says, what times are these when a conversation about trees is almost a crime because it implies silence about so many misdeeds? Um, now, those are not lines that I think we should, understood to, we should understand to characterize Brecht's own attitude toward nature or his lyrical production in exile. Um, he wrote numerous poems while he was in exile that prove his deep interest and concern about nature. Um, but these lines did achieve notoriety for the post-war generation as a summary indictment of literary discourses about nature that were designed to evade political realities and responsibilities. Um, so in 1977, an issue of the literary magazine Tintenfish, Squid, um, which was dedicated to the new environmental literature, found it necessary deliberately to invert Brecht's dictum in its editorial introduction. Um, so Christopher Buch, the editor of that, that issue, argued that by the 1970s, it was, quote, almost a crime not to talk about trees, given also a very prominent concern in Germany um, at the time with the die-off of forests, the so-called Waldstab, which was sort of a major obsession with the, with the environmentalist movement, sort of the acid rain um, induced um, dying off of the forests. Um, so the principal legacy of Nazism for the genre of nature poetry, therefore, was that nature in German literature became firmly associated with political escapism. That's not to imply that nature poetry was no longer written after 45, even though it was hardly a major genre. In West Germany, nature continued to be the realm of refuge for those who resisted the reconstruction of the Adenauer years with the rearmament of the German army, the introduction of nuclear weapons, and the gradual transformation of West Germany into a consumer economy. In East Germany, the GDR, nature appeared in poetry mainly by way of rural scenarios that celebrated the liberation of the soil and the villages by socialist agriculture. Ecological movements and initiatives took on force in West Germany in the late 1960s, whereas in the GDR, the Green Push didn't gain momentum until the mid to late 1970s. But um, interestingly, that timeline isn't reflected in the literature of the two countries. In both parts of Germany, eco-poetry emerged at about the same time in the early to mid-1970s. There's one notable exception to this. The West German poet and public intellectual Hans Magnus Enzensberger, one of the most eminent German poets of the 20th century, in whose poems ecological problems began to surface already in, in the late 1950s. He has two collections of poems, one from 1957 and one from 1960. And even in 1957, he has one poem where he describes poison boiling in the tomatoes. It was sort of an anticipation of a, a racial Carson-esque scenario. Now, as may already be clear from this extremely brief um, survey of nature poetry as a genre, German poets in the 1970s who wanted to address ecological challenges faced a very different task from their American counterparts. They had to develop a lyrical idiom that would show the natural world as it was being endangered by industrial civilization, but without lapsing into the idealizations that would once again turn it into an escape from the realm of politics. 
Both East and West German poets accomplished this by focusing on bleak scenarios of natural destruction. Many of these poems revolve around landscapes dominated by smokestacks and pollution, concrete that seems to spread almost on its own, um, industrial machinery that rips the soil open, consumer trash littered about, and a culture that cherishes the fake and the artificial over the natural. In West Germany, in addition, an entire subgenre of poems and folk songs developed around a very sustained protest against the construction of nuclear power plants. Um, so there were three famous construction sites and protests, Wien, Ochdorf, and Gorleben. <coughs> and there were a lot of sort of popular songs that were just kind of written on the spot and sung and chanted during those protests. Most of these poems explicitly state their anti-capitalist protest against industrial corporations, especially um, chemical and pharmaceutical companies, and the government that caters to this industry against the interests of the people. At the same time, they're also at the same time quite pessimistic about the potential for creating a different kind of society. Um, overall, I think it's difficult to overemphasize the differences between this kind of poetry and that of a Gary Snyder or Wendell Berry. The embittered militant poems of early German environmentalism cast nature as the battleground of an all-important political struggle that leaves little room for the quiet contemplation of a rural or wild landscape, as you find it in Wendell Berry, or meditative hikes through the wild, um, as you find them in Gary Snyder. And something like a Gary Snyder poem, the, what is it, 17 things to do around a mountain lookout, um, you just don't find that or anything equivalent in German poetry. The possibility of a harmonious reunification with nature seems for the most part foreclosed. And that not only or mainly, I would argue, because of the political activism of many of the poets, but also because such fusion would have smacked too much of the political escapism against which eco-poetry was militating at the time. But it's not only the description of nature as a harmonious whole into which humans should reintegrate themselves that's by and large foreclosed in German eco-poetry. The relationship between nature and technology is also envisioned in very different terms, and so I want to say a few words about that with another um, example of juxtaposed poems. For both East and West German poets, technology seemed to be invariably associated with an ideology of progress that had already ravaged the natural world and was bound to proceed in its erasure of the non-human, um, whether that ideology of growth and progress was socialist or capitalist. Um, that's a little overstated. I mean, there were some poets who, in um, dutiful socialist fashion, did celebrate technology in relation to socialism. So there's one, a couple of poets, particularly East German poets, who do this. But by and large, um, technology does not come with positive associations in the poetry of the time. Um, in particular, technology was also linked to Nazism and the Holocaust. In a famous debate about poetry, in the GDR in East Germany in 1966, the poet Günter Kunert, um, one, of the, again, one of the more important figures of the post-war poetry scene, um, was asked whether he thought modern technologies were forcing poetry to change, to which he responded by saying that to him the most important technologies were those that had prevailed at Auschwitz and Hiroshima. It's practically impossible, with the exception of these um, few socialist poets, to find a German poem from the 1970s or 80s in which technology is envisioned as having any positive role in humans' life or in the salvaging of nature. Now, if you compare this to the US, technology only plays a marginal role in the works of poets such as Gary Snyder or Wendell Berry, though Snyder, it should be said, is of course quite capable of lyrical effusions over a car ride or a metropolis such as New York City. 
but it does appear prominently in the lyrical works of John Cage, um, which throughout his career from the 1960s to the 1990s blend a deep interest in the natural world, most strikingly on display in the recurring accounts of his mushroom hunting, and an obsession with the possibilities of new technologies inspired by the techno-utopianism of Marshall McLuhan and Buckminster Fuller. That runs through his entire oeuvre, of course. Um, so I put a passage from the beginning of Cage's Mushroom book from 1972 on your handout, which displays some of the hallmark elements of his poetry. Baked polyporous frondosis, butter and season covered until tender. Chop. Steep wild rice, five times 20 minutes in boiling water, last water salted, combined. Voices singing Joyce's ten thunderclaps transformed electronically to fill actual thunder envelopes. Strings playing star maps transformed likewise to fill actual raindrop envelopes. <coughs> Rain falling on materials representing history of technology. McLuhan. Last rain not falling, wind instruments, i.e. present moment. Music becomes nature, John's. Man, earth, a problem to be solved. So Cage here juxtaposes with the humor that's typical of his writings a recipe for preparing mushrooms with an outline for a performance that combines in equally characteristic manner the human voice, musical instruments, literature, electronics, and elements of nature. Voices and strings will be electronically mapped onto the sound patterns of thunder and rain. That is the meaning of envelopes in this context. I mean, I actually have to talk to somebody who does electronic music and who knew a little bit about what was what was being done in the 1970s to figure out what, what was meant by envelopes in this passage, which is by no means clear on first reading. Other elements are more ambiguous. How will the strings play star maps? What does it sound like when rain falls on materials representing history of technology as opposed to falling on anything else? Why is the end of rain equivalent to the present moment? There aren't any obvious answers to these questions, but clearly what interests Cage is the transformation of cultural phenomena into natural ones. Voices become thunder, strings sound like rain, and music becomes nature, as he sums it up. Electronics plays a central role in this conversion process, since it's the means by which culture maps itself onto nature. So in the first stanza with that, with that um, recipe for mushrooms, um, first stanza describes the process whereby a product of nature is transformed into culture. Um, but Cage has a second stanza describe a complementary process whereby cultural practices reconnect with nature. Both processes point up the uncertain relation of culture to nature that Cage then summarizes in the next two lines, man, earth, a problem to be solved. Cage, of course, offers no unambiguous solution to this problem. But from the juxtaposition of the two preceding stanzas, it emerges that he sees no fundamental difference between a primitive technique such as cooking or the advanced technologies um, that electronics offers. Both effect transformations from nature into culture and back again. So in a very different lyrical idiom, therefore, Cage articulates a sense of the connection between nature <coughs> and human-made environments that actually resembles that of Gary Snyder in Night Errands. Both poets are willing to use poetic form as a means for envisioning new human-nature interfaces that ultimately function as a foundation for optimistic political visions. Now compare that to the following short poem by Yogi Teobaldi, uh, which is entitled Vasi Hergab, which translates as what she gave or what she yielded. And this is actually a really beautiful poem, so I'm going to read that in the German and then the translation. Wiesen, satte Matten über die Erde gelebt, 
das leichte Wort Bügel an, in das der Regen ohne Botschaft weht. Stapel von Holz unterm Schindeldach, Kunststoff GmbH an der Wand. Leuchte, Schrift, oh leichte Schrift. Wolken zerlaufen, der Traktor ist auf dem Feld zusammengebrochen und wächst in den Boden hinein. Die Natur erhält, was sie hergab, vergiftet zurück, die glimmernde Schrift. Und so werden eine Proximate clumsy but fairly literal translation. Meadows, lush mats spread out over the earth, the easy word uphill into which the rain is blown without a message. Piles of wood under the shingled roof, plastics incorporated on the wall. Shine script, oh easy script or light script. Um, clouds dissolve, the tractor has broken down on the field and is growing into the soil. Nature receives back what she gave, poison, the gleaming script. Now this is one of the more subtle poems in its genre. It mentions neither spreading suburbs nor freeways, smokestacks, nuclear power plants, or polluted rivers directly. On the contrary, it portrays what looks at first sight like a relatively peaceful and harmonious scene in the countryside, with piles of wood and an old tractor parked in a field. In fact, technology itself here doesn't seem to have any significant power since the tractor has broken down and in a metaphor that seems to indicate its reintegration into nature is described as growing into the soil. But the inscription plastics incorporated, apparently in neon sign, since it shines, on what presumably was once a farmhouse, reveals that the dysfunctionality of the tractor does not indicate any real reunification with nature, but on the contrary, the replacement of agriculture by industry. Now, in so, so obviously this farmhouse has been at least converted to an advertising billboard, possibly even itself to industrial purposes. Now, interestingly, what the encroachment of industry here entails is not machinery and concrete so much as writing. The last two lines, which describe the integration of the tractor into the soil as poison, associate that treacherous merger with the gleaming neon script alluded to earlier. It's the intrusion of writing into a rural landscape without language that stands as the ultimate symbol of loss and devastation. Note that at the beginning of the poem, the rain carries no message. Quite in contrast to Cage's merging of literature and electronics into nature, which is presented, if not as the solution, then at least as a productive approach to the problem of human relation to their environment. Culture and technology in Theobaldi combine in their onslaught on nature, whereas they become a means of reconnecting with nature in Cage. If Gary Snyder's serenity in describing things to do around a mountain lookout is difficult to imagine in German poetry, at least any poetry that understands itself as environmentally engaged, Cage's fusion of advanced technology and nature is equally hard to conceive in a poetry that sees modern technology as fiercely opposed to nature and indeed to human life itself. Now these differences, and this is kind of what I've attempted to show here, don't derive primarily from any fundamental divergence in the way the ecological crisis is experienced in Germany and the US, but rather from the kind of poetic, poetic discourses that are culturally available in the late 60s and early 70s to address this crisis by aesthetic and literary means. So the comparatist perspective points to some of the ways in which debates over the role and configurations of the real environmental literature need to shift once they're taken beyond individual national contexts or the framework of particular indigenous traditions. What's at stake in different literary portrayals of environmental issues is not only varying experiences of crisis or divergent philosophical perspectives on the interaction of humans with nature, 
but also, and often I would argue more centrally, the shaping influence of genres and metaphors that are contextually available to translate eco-crisis into aesthetic form, as well as, of course, those that are not accessible for particular, if also contingent, historical reasons. American eco-criticism has often assumed that eco-poetry arises from writers' connections to the places they inhabit and has tended to assess poetry in terms of how it reflects this experience of place and the exposure to ecological crisis. Or, in a somewhat different vein, it has approached environmental literature in general and environmental poetry in particular as an aesthetic staging ground for fundamentally philosophical reflections on the essence of human encounters with nature. My point here isn't to deny that these elements play a role in environmental writing. Obviously, they do. Rather, it is to emphasize that portrayals of the human encounter with nature are crucially shaped by contingencies of cultural, aesthetic, and literary history. In the US, for example, the very emphasis on embeddedness in place can itself be understood as a product of an at least bicentennial cultural tradition that casts rootedness as the antidote to the nation's characteristic restlessness and mobility. And that's an argument that I've made in more, at more length in the, in the book um, that um, Liz has mentioned. By the same token, the bitterness, militancy, and pessimism of German eco-poetry certainly has something to do with the cultural and political situation of the two Germanys in the 1970s and with the active involvement of many of the poets in the anti-nuclear and green movements. But it is also, and just as importantly, conditioned by a literary history that made the placid contemplation of nature and its unqualified celebration unavailable as poetic modes in the 1970s. In other words, what's recorded in eco-poetry is not just a however authentic experience of nature and not just political and social struggle but also a literary and cultural history of encounters with nature. The task of comparative eco-criticism in this context is to show not only how environmental crisis presents itself through the lens of different cultural traditions, but how even the most fundamental environmentalist concepts, things such as nature, organism, environment, or for that matter, crisis, are conceived and experienced through the geological pressures of past contingencies that have sedimented in particular aesthetic forms and genres or their absence. Thank you. Thank you for such a uh, broad-ranging and uh, rich talk. Um, we have some time for discussion, but uh, briefly I wanted to mention that we're holding a workshop tomorrow discussing uh, species extinction at lunch. So if you have an RSVP to Amanda, either talk with Amanda or First, thanks. It's a very engaging, interesting talk. I was I have two questions, I think, both of which arise from the distinction on the, the chart you provide here, distinguishing materialist and non-materialist approaches to environmentalism. Yeah. One is, does this seem to you to correspond to a tension within eco-criticism between a kind of activist presentist project and a much more kind of aesthetic or traditionally scholarly form of approach. The second is more historically specific to the 1960s, 70s period you're working with, where it seems to me possible that environmentalism emerged partly because there was exactly a split like this was becoming increasingly problematic for the new left, whereby you had a, a new left political movement recognizing its increasingly divergent interests from a kind of countercultural hippie lifestyle movement. Right. 
and that it seemed possible through environmentalism to try to reunite those two forces toward becoming a little more, bit more of a successful movement. Yeah, I think that that latter is. I mean, that's a that's a very provocative formulation. I think of the of the political and intellectual history, and I think an interesting way of, of looking at the emergence of environmentalism. I think you're you're right about the split, um, but I would probably um, within environmentalism, I would probably cast it a little bit differently though, because I think in the U.S., what's fascinating is that um, I don't think that the that the sort of more aesthetic non-utilitarian engagement with nature was not necessarily non-political. I mean, if you think of something like Friends of the Earth, I mean, the real biocentrics who really want nature without humans and with as little human interference as possible, but they're very militant, you know, or um, the Sea Shepherds and stuff like that. I mean, these, these um, uh, environmentalist organizations that have precisely the kind of attitude toward nature that Ramachandra Guha attacks, and he attacked it in, a, in an essay that's also included in the Varieties of Environmentalism, but which came out earlier, where he um, sort of lambasts American environmentalism for his investment in wilderness, which he says in the third world is really um, deadly in a literal sense because it then leads to the expulsion of indigenous populations or simply poor populations that have actually used natural areas sustainably for the sake of establishing national parks and stuff like that in India and, and in Africa. So he's very much opposed to an ideal of nature that would exclude certain kinds of human human uses. So I would probably draw the dividing line a little bit differently. I mean, I think there, there definitely is that um, that deep divide between the sort of more um, the social ecology of Amari Bookchin and, the, and, and yeah, his engagement with the, um, with the political left and the whole sort of what we now call sort of anthropocentric um, uh, environmentalism and, and the biocentrics. Which really, I mean, I think it's an open question whether they are leftist in any, at least European sense. I mean, I think it's actually somewhat, somewhat different tradition. I mean, in some ways they are, and then in others they they aren't left in their in their political ideology. But I, I'm not sure that it lines up with being politically engaged or not. I think they both are, but but in different ways. I actually, if I can just jump in and add to that, because I know, as you know very well, Ramachandra uh, also makes an argument of another kind of split, which is to say that at the rise of the 1960s civil rights movement, you have a split where you have civil rights movement, women's rights, yeah. and then environmentalism, right? And so yeah. there's also another split that he points out, and obviously these are kind of holistic terms, but in terms of how people are aligned, but, but that also his critique is that there was a shift in terms of people who weren't engaging in particular forms of civil rights that actually preferred to move into the environment, seeing the environment as a way of kind of subsuming all other kinds of human differences, which I think is also another important shift to yeah, and that's kind of coming back to haunt us. I mean, in, in interesting ways because if you look at um, the the recent debates of, around the um, Schellenberger and Nordhaus piece, the what is environmentalism, and then the Adam Warbuck piece, um, environmentalism is dead. I mean, he's the very young um, director of the Sierra Club. Um, where I think what comes to the fore, I mean, what Schellenberger and Nordhaus deplore is that environmentalists have become just another special interest group, right? And they say, well, why haven't environmentalists engaged more with other movements? So why, for example, do they always think of the car companies as their enemy when they could really say, okay, so the car companies have real problems financing retirement plans for their employees, which is something that environmentalists should at least indirectly be interested in, because it's sort of the welfare of the working class. Um, and why don't they sort of make a pact and say, okay, we'll support you on that, 
if you in turn will invest more money into developing green cars, and hybrid cars, and so forth. Um, and so the argument is, and that's, this has been made by other, I mean, I think they build on the work done by other um, sort of more cultural historians, um, that, I mean, precisely that moment in the 60s when this category of environment and environmentalism emerges in its modern configuration actually brings together wildly different issues, right? Some of which have to do with land management, some of which have to do with labor, some of which have to do with public health. Um, and they're really kind of not inherently related or were not conceived as such before. Um, and so the great achievement of the environmentalist movement was to make them, in the, in the way that you indicate, make, make them seem like they were all part of the same thing. But then that in and of itself, I mean, this ability to sum different issues under this one specialized term, that of course led to this branching off into its own movement, whereby it only becomes one among many interest groups and becomes progressively detached in a lot of ways from, say, labor issues or, or more general public health issues that might have to do with industry, environment, and so on, so on and so forth. Um, so, so there is a way in which what, you know, this was, I think, a political and cultural victory at the time, but it also had some long-term costs that I think were visible that, that are just really interesting to, to look at with figures 40 or 50 years to distance. Um, I've read your historical, literary historical segment about um, the, uh, the sort of appropriation of nature by uh, Hitler's sort of apparatus um, was interesting. And in fact, like it seemed to me there were more parallels in the United States than differences um, of the literature of that period with like the poetry of place or the literature of place being seen as a national literature here in the U.S. as well, with obviously with with uh, fewer problems um, in certain respects, but the American avant-garde evacuated, especially in the 30s, the, um, the, po the writing of place, I think, as a as a site of resistance, literature, anti-nationalist resistance. Um, in, in fact, it sort of became appropriate by the state modes that, that sponsored sort of place-oriented, you know, writing, writing groups. Um, and so it just seemed to me like maybe, um, maybe there's a lot of parallel stories that you could tell as well between sort of the nationalist, you know, worldwide, or at least like um, the develop, in the developed world, um, trajectory of the way that literature of place gets appropriated by um, nationalist um, states and whether those are far right wing or whether those are more centra centralized in the, in the nation um, throughout the 30s and this in part leads to the sort of impasse before the emergence in both the US and Germany um, of sort of modern environmentalism much later. But it's almost a full generation removed in both the US I think and in like Germany it seems to me. You're being very kind in the way you phrase your criticism. What, what your criticism, I think, essentially is, is that I'm vastly oversimplifying Dutch history, and you're totally right about that. In the 19th century, too, I mean, one could argue that the that the um, uh, that the difference between the two kinds of environmentalist movement is not quite as stark as I've painted it here. In that, I mean, think of something like the creation of national parks. Um, I mean, in that, in the in the rhetoric surrounding um, the foundation of national parks, there is talk of historical legacies and things like that. I still think it's justified to, I mean, the, the differences when you read these documents side by side are more striking than, than the similarities which are undoubtedly there. 
Um, what you allude to, I think, is really important. I mean, the appropriation or the, or the use of nature for nationalist purposes, which, of course, in the U.S. also runs throughout the 19th century, right? I mean, this is nature's nation. So, so that has a long history. Um, and it, and that the same is true, you're absolutely right, of a lot of developing nations um, and so forth. I still think that I would, I would make an argument that that's a little bit different um, from what the Nazi legacy is, or at least what it became, because nationalism can be whatever it is. It isn't necessarily associated with genocide and with historical trauma in the way that, that the particular kind of nationalism in the 30s and 40s in Germany was. Um, and I mean, this, this sort of became very clear to me in, in rereading recently um, John Elder's book, um, Imagining the Earth, which was one of the first books on eco-poetry that came out in the second edition, and it came first out in 1985, I think, and then the second edition in 96, where at one point he has one whole chapter where he talks about um, Thoreau's metaphor of compost. Um, and of uh, envisioning um, culture as sort of a compost where decay um, leads to cultural continuity and you sort of reuse what is there in the past. And he compares this to T.S. Eliot's tradition of the individual talent and the reusing of the past for continuous cultural tradition. Um, Jed Razula has, has um, explored the same metaphor in a whole book on nature and eco-poetry also. Um, that's another thing that's simply unthinkable in the German 20th century context. I mean, I just don't think that there are any German writers or intellectuals that readily think of Germany as having a continuous, or think positively of culture as sort of a continuous dynamism. I mean, in Germany, what prevails is the sense of total rupture and the desire for total rupture, of course, after the war. Um, so, so I do think there are real differences um, even as I, I think you're right that, I mean, in the U.S. too, you have sort of this emerging countercultural movements in the 20s that then in the U.S. through the Cold War kind of get squashed. So there is that interesting hiatus between the 20s and the 60s, I think, in a lot of countries where certain um, types of political resistance emerge and then for, I think, what are relatively different reasons that get submerged between the 30s and the 50s and only only re-emerge in the 60s. And I like so I think, the way you say it, like um, that particular literary modes are unavailable. And I, I like yeah. the way that you phrase that. Yeah. It seems very descriptive. That, that seemed to me that, I mean, I was sort of almost working there from a notion of constraint. You know, like in, in poetry, you know, like some certain forms of experimental poetry, like in Pool and so I worked with the notion that, you know, poetic form as constraint, that there's certain things you can't do, and that sort of, became the seed for thinking about things that are not poetic constraints in that formal sense, but cultural constraints. That there's a certain, yeah, certain, certain modes that you can't use for cultural or historical reasons. Yeah. Um, I have a question about the distinction you draw between the two different ways in which culture is done. It seems to kind of recapitulate a, a stereotype about American politics, where Americans think they're such a thing happiness, they are, they are optimistic and upbeat slash ignorant, European is a dark, brooding, complicated. Um, and I was wondering if, uh, I mean, I, when you look at a poem like The Cage, the last line, man slash earth, the problem to be solved, that's clearly not, it's not a naive poem. Um, and I was wondering, in Evening Notes, the other one, the, the, the Nightmare, maybe even be read ironically, perhaps, but I was wondering, is it 
are there American? I'm willing to accept that there's billions in the world, but I can assume that are there American films that are more, uh, um, more like the German ones, do you think? Or, yeah, or, they, you know, does this, does this, we can maintain this, this binary. I think by and large I would. I mean, I think if you read large swaths of the okay, poetry, the, dif yeah. the difference is really quite striking. Yeah. But of course, it never, you know, it never, there's never a one to one um, uh, sort of national stereotype um, uh, equation. I mean, if you look at certain um, poems by Wendell Berry on soil erosion, I mean, he does get very bitter at times mm -hmm. and, very, um, and very angry, you know, and Gary Snyder at times writes very angry poems. Though I think not necessarily um, during this period. I mean, I think I see him writing more angry poems lately. Um, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. is in recent days that it's probably been more sensitive. Right. Yeah. And I mean, certainly, you know, I mean, I, I focus here on the moment of emergence. You know, the poetry that emerges from that, from that first, um, from that first political push. Yeah, I'm sorry if it corresponds to a stereotype, but to some extent it does. And I don't. I'm not sure. I mean, I would not make this a statement about European eco-poetry at this point to begin with because I don't think that necessarily applies to British at all. I mean, the Brits are all ways apart, but um, <laughs> we don't recognize that they're really Europeans, actually. Um, no, just kidding. But, um, but, but then there are other, you know, I mean, I'm yeah, reasonably familiar with a Spanish tradition. There you don't really have an emergence of eco-poetry in that sense, around the same, I mean, we're still, you know, in the Frank, under the Franco dictatorship. So the fact that you even have um, the emergence of a whole genre that you can meaningfully summarize under that label is already pretty nationally distinctive. It's not, it's not pan-European at all. Um, and in France too, I mean, the emergence of environmentalist movement and then environmental literature is much more complicated. I think much more subdued. I mean, I was interested in Germany. Um, not just because, I mean, it is an environmental movement that I've studied in some depth, but also because it seemed comparable in the way in which it, it does develop a really strong political movement fairly early on, whereas in a lot of other European countries, um, with the exception of Britain, where it also emerges around the same time, but in, in France and Spain, it comes much later and much in much weaker form, and to this day has not, um, has not evolved the same kind of really strong political presence that it has in Germany. I mean, all these countries now have green parties, and in France it's reasonably influential, the, the Spanish one is not, not very much. Um, in Italy you have some environmental poetry, which, um, which I've begun to look at. Um, but, um, so, so um, uh, I don't know, I mean, maybe there is something to the stereotype, but I would limit it to, to this particular genre and to and to Germany, and I mean, the two Germanys are also somewhat different at that moment. I mean, in, in East Germany, I think you have the, the split between um, what poets write and what they dare to write, and then the sort of officially cultivated um, literature of technological optimism that's also there. Um, and you have a lot of, and, and some, um, some writers, such as the early Christa Wolf and other well-known writers, I mean, in the 60s and 70s, they're still with the program. Later on, they're not, and they become much more critical um, of, of, these, um, of these ideas that are sort of uh, propagated in close connection with, with Moscow. Um, so, um, so, so there's also that split. I mean, there's, there's, of course, the inner descent in the GDR, which, you know, what it 
producers looks relatively different than, than the establishment poets that work on. So, so the picture is again much more complicated than we're able to put in a in a forty minute talk. But I would I would to some extent probably want to stick by my guns as far as the general opposition is concerned because I I do think that that um, there is much more of the sort of immediate protest mode or in some of the um, not printed or only belatedly printed poetry even I mean the fact that they are chants or, or things that were sung at demonstrations makes them a relatively different genre than most of the American education that we've given. Jeez, I don't know where to start. Do you want to start? <laughs> I hope you'll uh, forgive a very naive question from somebody way out. Absolutely. Um, the phrase eco-criticism, I'm trying to understand really what that means, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if there's some element of literary criticism whether eco-criticism is uh, specifically meant to be milder than, say, eco-protest. Um, so eco-criticism, I mean, what it's come to mean in the, in the last 15 years is a particular area of literary and cultural studies, not environmentalism, broadly speaking. And so it's criticism in the aesthetic sense. It's not criticism in the, in the sense of protest. So it's simply, I mean, it, it emerged along with other, and eco-criticism for a long time had other other designations, I mean, environmentally oriented literary criticism, which was way too long for anybody to say for any length of time, or green, green literary studies, green cultural studies, eco-criticism, I think just because it's the shortest and most, you know, it has come to mean, but it really, you know, it doesn't mean necessarily eco-protest, it just means analysis um, of literary and cultural artifacts and practices from an environmentalist perspective. So that's it's about the, the sort of uh, pioneer mentality of America. The, the what? The what? Pioneer mentality. Yeah. I mean, our self-image as being uh, expanding <laughs> into the wilderness, and uh, you know, the Louisiana Purchase, and Paul Bunyan, and Daniel Boone, <laughs> and um, you, you know, aren't those really embedded in our hearts and, and um, part of the way we look at? Yes, except that um, that I think even in the 19th century, of course, you have a different, I mean, absolutely, and that's part of, but I think that's part of the cultural background against which environmentalism emerges as much as it in some ways draws on that tradition, because even in the 19th century, when you look at um, Alexander Wilson's American Ornithology, or you look at the Tocqueville's writings, I mean, very early on in the 19th century, you do get a sense that people are worried about Americans stomping across their continent and then back, right? I mean, the Tocquevilles are these Americans just stomping all the way to the West Coast and then stomping back once again, undoing everything that they made and remaking it. And both admires the dynamism of it and then is deeply ambivalent about what it's doing to forests, what it's doing to Native Americans. And there is that sort of elegiac sense of loss also in, in somebody like, like James Manuel Cooper, right? Um, so I think, and that is, I think, the mode that then in the 20th century, takes the upper hand, especially from the 1960s onward, that yes, on one hand, there is still that desire to master nature and the, the desire to identify the American spirit in some ways with that mastery, but also, I mean, especially from the 1960s onward, you know, increasing sense that there are, that, that the cost that you pay for that mastery might be too high. So I think, you know, I think environmentalism emerges in that context. Um, does that I mean, it's a very foreshortened answer, obviously. Yeah, and, and, and a foreshortened question, too. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a, a kind of a counter-environmentalist literary movement? I mean, those people who feel uh, 
um, you, you know, who, who, I don't want to rape and pillage, but basically who feels that nature. Yeah, the nature is ours, and, and uh, it was put here for us, and should um, we take advantage of it? Um, well, I mean, uh, I think there, there's a lot of varieties of that. I mean, in Germany, actually, it's not it's not common environmentalism really that, but in the in the teens and twenties, I mean, the famous German poet Gottfried Benn, of course writes poems about how he hates nature. He really doesn't like our pretty damn walks that, that Germans have to take on, on Sundays. And so, so, um, so in Europe, again, perhaps stereotypically, there's also, I mean, all the way from Baudelaire, there's deep suspicion as to the healthiness of being out there in nature a whole lot. Um, I don't know that the, that the um, I mean, if there's a, a backlash against environmentalism rather than the, than the political one in, in literature and culture, I don't think it takes quite the form that you've described, that people sort of go back to the old gung-ho, let's rape and pillage, or at least use nature. More, um, I think the indirect form that it takes, say, from the from the 1980s on, is something like, like cyberpunk, mm -hmm. where you have devastated natural and urban landscapes that are totally taken for granted as a background, but then you have the excitement of new forms of technology, new transformations of the human body that totally trump what might be going on with the natural environment. So I think there, there is a real reassertion um, of that sort of technological utopianism that has become associated with various forms of technology that kind of, yeah, that, that puts that, you know, oh, you know, whether, you know, the iPod that we're, that we're all carrying around is, you know, drawing on resources and becoming waste every six months when we have to buy the latest upgrade sort of takes a back burner to the excitement of having these new technologies and always also having the latest of them. So I think it, may, it takes that kind of backlash more than the perhaps um, socially less acceptable, oh, let's go back to throwing our trash around and, and, um, <laughs> and throwing trees. So did you want to go next and then? How do you uh, modify your um, view here of American uh, poetry and environment, which is key factor being played out of American? But given the German or a certain group of Germans' fascination for Native American yes. culture, I wonder what kind of connection you might, or disconnection you might draw there. We actually, um, there was an eco-conference, eco-criticism conference last October in La Coruña, where a lot of the European eco-critics were, and Linda Hogan, um, the Native American author, gave, gave one of the keynotes, and one of the, um, one of the German colleagues asked this question um, that, um, I think he sort of wanted to defend enlightenment rationale, but he said, you know, um, how come that in the United States this indigenous wisdom you talk about um, is so despised, whereas in Germany it's so popular, I mean, to the point where there's Germans who dress up as Native Americans and live in wigwams, right? Um, and so, so this German colleague who was sitting next to me said, that's because we are the natives. And um, I sort of, I could, could, kind of couldn't hold it at that point, so I started, started giggling. But of course, there, there, is a, there is a point to this in the sense that you don't, in much of Europe, you don't have that sense of a division between, between a native population and then a superimposed other, other population, or at least it's so far back and it's mostly between Europeans, right? I mean, it's between the, the Franks and the... And the um, and the Germans and so, and so forth. Um, so, um, but anyway, to to um, to answer your question a little bit differently in the context of, of American literature, um, are you implying that there is a more negative 
perception well, that you have no interest. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think you could make that argument with regard to somebody like um, Leslie Marlin Silko, where there's certainly real indictments of, say, um, nuclear um, nuclear plants and uranium mining on um, Native American reservations. But still, I mean, see, I would accuse the Native American authors of ultimately buying into a very similar myth that ultimately you can get back to nature and you can, if you go back to the Native tradition, you can actually reconnect. Um, I mean, in something like ceremony, that's very obvious. I mean, there are these very bitter scenes about a veteran coming back and being haunted by, by scenes from, um, from the war and then being confronted with uranium mining with the devastation of the landscape. But the idea is also that through his encounter with a mythological yellow woman, he then does somehow succeed in reintegrating himself in his own people's traditions and identity and does succeed that's cutting culture. the fence, you know. But that's culture though, right? It's reintegration into a tradition that's a culture tradition as opposed to even, I mean, right. it's the, the difference there with between nature and culture is very hard to make. Well, exactly. I mean, the perception is that you that there is a cultural tradition that allows that reconnection with nature. And I think in, in somebody like Edward Abbey or Wendell Berry, there's the same hope, but not tied to the same cultural traditions. Whereas I'm, I'm just not, sh I mean, it's not obvious from the, I mean, I think that's true too about environmental literature during nuclear's day. I mean, there's just not this, this hope that you can really reconnect in that sort of visceral, visceral way. I mean, there's, there's much more an insistence that it's always going to be highly mediated, highly modern, highly technologized, and that that may not necessarily be a good thing. I mean, like I said, it's not often not particularly optimistic. Yeah, yeah I had a method, sort of a methodological question where you're sort yeah. of mapping out eco-criticism and you take a sort of binary between the realism, mimeticism of like Sartre, emergence of textuality and contemporary textuality. I was just wondering where you saw your into that, my, I was sort of reading your talk as being sort of mimetically related to history, um, but then when you sort of turned metaphor at the end, you saw the textuality coming back in. So I just wanted to see the, sort of the, the cultural comparison as a, a blending of those two approaches, or a sort of third thing beyond those approaches, or? Yeah. That's, a, that's a really good question, not, not I think one that's, that's easy to answer, because I mean, I'm. Um, clearly, the thrust of my argument is away from mimeticism or from thinking that um, that environmental literature in any straightforward way registers experiences with nature. I mean, it does that at some level, but I mean, my emphasis is on you need to look at what the terms of that reconnection are, what the terms of that encounter, are, and those are always cultural. So, in that sense, um, I don't. I would not describe my own project as in any way post-structuralist necessarily, but it is um, but it is a sort of cultural studies approach in, in that sense, in that it, it just doesn't accept that there are sort of unmediated experiences with, with nature, at least not once they get translated into into literature or or, or film or or um, or internet art. Um, but, you know, I would, I mean, I'm not a strong constructivist either. I mean, I think, you know, environmental risks are there and, and experiences with nature are undoubtedly there. But I think how they then get filtered and what gets selected, that I think is sort of our job as literary and cultural critics to figure out. So I guess you could describe it as in some ways a reconstructivist 
position. I, anyway, I mean, I'm, you know, with a, with a post-structuralist legacy, I mean, I think it has, um, and especially sort of the Foucauldian part of it, I think has actually um, had a lot of interesting outcomes and a lot of important consequences um, for my own work. The sort of really radical linguistic skepticism that's implicit in, in French deconstruction is something that I don't really find very helpful for for engaging with these issues, and it doesn't really really get you anywhere. Or for that matter, the really the really strong skepticism and, and constructivism that's implicit in something like Nicolas Luhmann's systems theory, which has made an impact in, in so social studies of science, not so much in literary cultural studies outside of some Germanists. But that, again, it's a very strong constructivist view of society and nature, and one where Luhmann himself, I don't think, really has much of any interest to say about how we might want to address environmental crisis. So, I mean, I share with first wave eco critics a sense of, look, we can't go back to just saying, oh, scarcity is constructive and this is all, you know, these are all things that we make up. No, I mean, you know, we're having real problems and we need to address these. At the same time, and there you, you sort of pinpoint my ambivalence. I mean, at Stanford, I hang out a lot with, with the scientists and with a, that we have this Woods Institute, which is a wonderful place for collaboration between social scientists and natural scientists. And there's this whole, you know, ecologically constructed new building where all these students run around, you know, wanting to change the world and make policy, but nobody has ever sat them down and made them think about what terms like nature and environment might mean in some of the different cultures that they're called upon to address in their empirical work. You know, I mean, we're, after um, the tsunami, you know, they sent a bunch of kids um, to reconstruct habitat in the Andaman Islands, which were very affected. And I was absolutely flabbergasted as I raised my hand and said, but have they learned any of the languages? I mean, do they know anything about the culture and not just about the biological impact of the tsunami? Of course they don't. And I mean, I think that's when I then become very culturalist, I guess, and say, look, you can't meaningfully make policy and engage with the world and, pre and pretend to change the world if you don't have a clue about different cultural traditions and what, how certain things mean culturally and what certain kinds of American discourse sound like when you translate them into German. Yeah, I mean, you have to be aware of that at least before you do it. I mean, just to stick with this example. Um, but there are multiple others, of course. Um, and so, and so that, that was sort of, I don't know, I mean, I think now there's even the first wave eco critics. I think actually many of them have integrated theory right. in in very different ways than they did in the early days. Exactly. How many years are there? Two two diagnoses so far. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the post colonial, as I mentioned, I think could well turn into. Something that something that Liz and Allison in different ways are, are involved in. I mean, I think that could very well become a somewhat different third wave. But I mean, the, the first and second wave um, terminology stems from Laurence Field's third book, The Future of Environmental Criticism, where he makes that distinction. And it's yeah, it's approximate. But David Maisel is really in terms of when that book came out, first wave. But it's very Foucauldian, so it doesn't quite fit. But but it's I mean, as a rough distinction, I think it actually makes sense, and it does characterize. What are different kinds of intellectual engagement and different kinds of way of, ways of trying to get from literary and cultural theory to sort of real life eco activism and ecological change? Sorry. Yeah, so, no, I just last question, thinking, Alice. I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between this talk and your book. And in particular, I guess both are so provocative in terms of not only the cultural, historical, 
arguments you're making, but also the formal ones. And I, I mean, that seemed to be a really important uh, concern of the book, too, that look, you know, you're also interested in, in understanding both what is possible formally and what becomes possible in the encounter with certain environmental concepts and crises. Um, you know, you talk about this a lot with, with white noise and satire, for example. So what, I guess my question is how you understand the relationship between what you're calling here comparative eco-criticism and what you call in the book eco-cosmopolitanism. And I'm thinking particularly about a writer like Karen Tanamashika. I'm also for some reason thinking about the poet Lauren Neidecker, who on yeah. the one hand seems to engage with place-based nature writing tradition of, of the US in her representation yeah, of Wisconsin. On the other hand, the formal influence is European avant-garde. And so, and actually at times in her poetry, there's a very transnational concern with um, something like war rationing. Um, and so what do you, how do those kinds of writers who are so transnational in both their formal uh, concerns and their environmental concepts, how do they work for you or relate to this more comparative in the sense of you know, two national linguistic yeah, um, so, so there's a couple of different questions there. I mean, the questions there, the, um, the first one sort of as to the difference between comparative eco, I mean, comparative eco-criticism to me is a methodology. I mean, that's, that's how you go about things. Eco-cosmopolitanism might be the outcome, or that's something more general. I mean, that's simply um, sort of an outlook that combines um, an eye for environmental issues as they play themselves out around the world with an understanding of how they play themselves out differently in cultural context and comparative eco-criticism in the academic context could be a way of getting at that, but that's really more, much more narrowly sort of academic scholarly kind of procedure and, and sort of making, wanting to make a stab and that's where my, I think my project also overlaps with, with those amongst you who do post-colonialism of, of making eco-criticism a much bigger presence in, in comparative literature and not just in, in English literature and then in individual literature departments, although English literature is where it's no doubt made its greatest impact. So, so I think eco-cosmopolitanism describes a sort of a much more general sort of attitude and perspective that may not be academics who hold it. I mean, I think I'm looking for something there that, that might also apply to people who work for NGOs or, you know, um, or other people just concerned citizens out there, whereas comparative eco-criticism is a specific intervention in a certain way of doing literary studies and eco-criticism in particular. Um, so yeah, as to, so, so you're right, I'm, I'm really, really obsessed with questions of form. Um, and um, in, that, in that sense, I guess I'm very, very old-fashioned in some ways. Um, and, um, and I think, um, so Lorraine Neidegger, let's start with her and then maybe Yamashita later. I'm not sure that I know, I'm gonna put Yamashita into this. But um, yeah, I'm actually, I mean, I'm really interested in the question of the European avant-garde and its legacies, because one of the um, one of the one of the commonplaces, of course, about the European avant-garde is that it did away with the notion of organic form. And so I'm actually it was supposed to be my next book. It's not going to be the, the next one after this next one on species extinction, because um, I got a contract for this one first. So I have to, you know, step on the pedal and do that one first. But the, there, sort of the ambition is to re-examine this whole question of how biological and aesthetic form might relate, not only, you know, not in the way in which they relate for Coleridge and, and uh, Shelley, but, but how they, and Schlegel, but how they, um, how they relate after Darwin 
after the discovery of DNA on the scientific side and how they were laid after the avant-garde, you know, so how do techniques like collage, montage, assemblage um, fit into the, whatever we might want to conceive of as the relationship between biological and, and aesthetic form. And so the place I've started there, it's, it's sort of an obvious place, but it was the easiest one to start, is surrealism, um, where there is an, an, an intense engagement with nature and among the French surrealists with this tradition of histoire naturelle as a particular kind of engagement with science and nature that they conceive of as in part an alternative to normal science. And then the way in which that gets translated along with bits and pieces of futurism to Latin America and the Caribbean. So, so in one chapter, I sort of try to trace that surrealist engagement to Brazilian modernismo in the, in the 20s and to Ignacio Zaire and Alberto Cartagena, who really rejects surrealism and thinks that the reservoir for alternative form lies in the biological forms of the new world. I mean, that's what's so striking about the avant-gardistes in the new world is that they actually, they, that, that statement that they do away with organic form is really sort of not true there because on the contrary, they try to base a resisting political stance on the cultural and biological difference of the new world. And I mean, that comes up again and again. How fauna and flora is so different that European artists can't even grasp it. And so it has to be artists from here and writers from here who really get onto it. And Cartagena leads to you know, really sort of very violent rejection of surrealism in his entire project, even as he draws on it. And so, and so Nidecker, I think, would be, you know, she's one of the poets that I want to actually look at, along with Cage and then Mary Whiting Higgins in the, in the later 20th century. But, but I mean, what I would say is that I think she's only very recently been integrated into that canon of environmental poetry, right? I don't think, I don't think she was early I mean, she, and she's certainly not attained the status of, say, a Snyder or a Moen or a Robinson Jeffers. I mean, it's only, you know, I think, you know, since the late 1990s that people are taking another look at people like Susan Howe, people like Charles Olson, um, people like Lauren Nidecker and saying, but wait a minute, there is a very sustained engagement here with nature and with natural deterioration in particular that we need to take another look at. Um, so I think that's part of how the, and Larry Eidner, I mean, there's George Oppen, I mean, there's not a lot of poets that are very experimental and are in completely different traditions from the ones that I've dealt with here that are being re-examined, but I think they were not initially received like that, and I'm not sure that Nidecker herself would have described her project that way. So I think, I think that's a somewhat different, different issue. And then, um, Yamashita, I mean, again, very different generation of writer, right, and something I mean, I find her interesting in the way in which she does strive toward developing what I would call sort of globalizing form. I mean, she tries to develop fictional forms, in her case, not poetry, that in some ways try to map the sort of global, global nature, but also global culture. I mean, at least some of them are, some of them are mostly in terms of society and culture in terms of globalization, but the arc of the rainforest is the one that I was really interested in, in terms of how it tries to talk about global nature. So, but, that, but that's a very, I mean, she starts writing in the late 80s, so we're talking also, yeah, and somebody who already sort of grows up with the environmentalist movement as an established presence, which is different than Gray or Snyder or those guys, so, old black guys. <laughs> we're gonna end on that note.